When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Slate Money is sponsored by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses, estimate your federal quarterly taxes, and more. See what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash money. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Random Rules edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm back. I hope you missed me. Well done to Jordan and Cardiff and Kathy for putting out an awesome podcast last week without me. I'm feeling a little bit, ex- you know, what's the word? Excluded. No, I think superfluous. you made superfluous. <laughs> it's I communicated. I feel like maybe this this podcast doesn't need me, and I'm I, I, Felix. I, we're so glad you're back. You're, thank you. You're, That's exactly what I was hoping you. would I'm say. so glad you're, you're back. sort of like Don Draper returning to Sterling Cooper after one of his benders and discovering that the whole thing. Stop that! Fall, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Not a mess. It's all fallen apart. It's true. This place does. I, I'm going to have to, you know, pull this thing back together. Okay. Um. So yes. We still have Jordan Weissman, <laughs> the Moneybox columnist, now you know relegated to a, a mere co-host r- role, <sighs> and Kathy <laughs> O'Neill, the blogger at MathBabe.org. Hello. And today we are going to talk about Google and its plans for a new virtual reality device, and all what's going on with cardboard, which is a great name for a virtual reality device. We're going to talk about media consolidation because there's been quite a lot of it recently. And, of course, because how could we not? We are going to talk about, Kathy FIFA. FIFA. And I'm looking forward to this because we got an email. Um, Kathy, do you have the email? Uh, not on me because I turned my phone off Jordan, for the podcast. do you have the email? I can go pull it Jordan up. Jordan has this habit of wandering into the Slate Money studio with a laptop on his lap. Stuck and to his lap. We're always a little bit worried. that we, he, You realize that when you think you're listening to Jordan paying attention, he's only really half paying attention because he's a classic millennial multitasker. He's checking his Instagram, obviously. Everything all at once. Uh, so, so here's here the email. Go. Who's it from? Uh, it is from uh, Pash McAdam. Uh, and uh, Pash writes, uh, I'm not sure whether the FIFA scandal will make the Slate Money discussion list. Yes, it did, Pash. It did, Pash. Thank Woo-hoo. you, Pash. But if it does, I've always wondered about the burgeoning international just jurisdiction of U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practice of the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and hoped this might add a sufficiently wonkish element to the discussion to tempt Felix into a topic that features a sport beloved by millennials. Um, <laughs> and he goes, "My question is, what is the practical downside of a non-compliance, non-cooperation with the FCPA for a foreign company?" Um, and then it. Continue, he continues on a bit, but that's the, that's just the question. Uh, Pash, I, I actually want to. This is a, a very good question. The funny thing is, this FIFA case wasn't brought under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. It was brought under RICO. Rico. So, but wait, yeah. hang on a sec. First of all, Kathy is going to tell us what's going on. 
Uh, while, while pronouncing Sepp Blatter in a very funny way. <laughs> Look, it's just the American way you say Sepp Blatter. Like, okay. Yeah. Even though there's a double T. So what happened this week? There were um, nine high-ranking FIFA officials and five corporate executives that were taken down at a hotel in Switzerland by Swiss authorities. But... Um, because but, but on behalf of the FBI. On behalf of the FBI. The Department of Justice is uh, indicting them for all sorts of things, including racketeering, wire fraud, and money laundering. But I don't really understand the law behind it. It's RICO. It's the racketeering anti-mafia law. And the money laundering stuff is is not particularly... The word that Pash is looking for here is extraterritoriality, which is one of my favorite words. And what the U.S. is very good at is using its hegemonic might to basically export its mores around the world. And the way it does that is through this principle of extraterritoriality, which basically says if something is illegal in America, we can arrest anyone for it anywhere in the world. And we can even ask the Swiss authorities to do it for us. Exactly. I've been joking that it's now, you know, Team America World Cup police. But like what, you know, the way the the U.S. has traditionally done this is through this law that Pash was asking about called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And and what that law says um, is that you are not allowed company executive to bribe a foreign official. You know, if you are Walmart, you can't go hand a briefcase of cash to somewhere, to some uh, Mexican official so you can build your store in their town. Um, and that was a, a real case that came up. Um, this, how, so, so the United States does have the toughest anti-bribery laws in the world. Exactly. It's, this FCPA, it applies to all companies which do business in the US, and which is not just American companies. It's also foreign companies in America. But absolutely... This was not actually the law which was wheeled out in this case. Which is, yeah, the surprising part. And the U.S., to be clear, has gone after some major international companies under the FCPA. One of the biggest cases involved Siemens. And basically with Siemens was, you know, the German conglomerate that was, it was bribing people in Africa, more or less. Um, and I, I believe, I'm recalling the number off the top of my head, it was a seven or $800 million fine. Um, and so that's traditionally been the big complaint from the rest of the world about U.S. extraterritoriality is that we export our bribery laws using this statute. However, they've brought this case under RICO, which is what was traditionally used to go after the U.S. mafia. Um, And the idea is you're committing some crime, but there's a conspiracy and you're working with a bunch of other people and underlings and you can just charge everybody as a whole, essentially, under RICO. I'm going to be honest. This indictment is actually a little bit confusing to me. I do not fully understand how exactly it holds together. And I haven't found anyone who exactly understands it either. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds. The point is basically that they were using the U.S. financial system to collect bribes. So what were they actually doing? What, like, they, I, well, I know they, there's they, $150 million. They were money laundering. There was yeah. wire fraud. There was... Just plain old bribery. Know, plain old bribery, all of which were legal. And if you do enough of those different things and you institutionalize it, then basically you become... A criminal organization. And what the U.S. is alleging is that FIFA is a criminal organization like the mafia. And yeah. it's using that statute to come down well, on FIFA. sort of. It's actually, it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's saying that FIFA's officials had created, some of these, these FIFA officials had created a criminal organization like the mafia. Right. They How, don't actually need yeah. to say that FIFA itself is a criminal that, organization, although that's kind of the implication. Well, no, because it's not actually, it's, it's exactly the opposite. And this is something that Mark Joseph Stern wrote about at um, Slate this week. The, the victim here is technically FIFA. That's the weird part of this, of this indictment. The, and I, again, I don't want to get 
too deep into it, but the theory is essentially that these officials in FIFA defrauded their own organization. And that is what's more, it's it's really weird when you say that this whole thing is going to be, this case is going to be used to bring down FIFA. Well, sort of, effectively it's happening, but it's really being used to bring down the, the corrupt group of people who have sort of monopolized FIFA. I want to take a step back and talk about FIFA itself. Well, yeah. What does FIFA do? For Americans, like we don't know from soccer. So FIFA is the world governing body of soccer. And as such, it does things like chooses where like international soccer tournaments are going to be held and chooses who okay, the corporate Sponsors let's are going to be. be. Let's not be too coy about this. It's in charge of the world. That's, Cup. that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Say so like it, it. It does things like chooses where international. Soccer. No, it's in charge of the World Cup. Ninety nine percent of what FIFA does is the World Cup. Okay. It's one soccer tournament every four years, and it is has an iron grip on the World Cup. If you want to advertise in the World Cup, if you want to broadcast the World exactly. Cup, if you want to host the World Cup, if you want to do anything at all to do with the World Cup, you need to go through FIFA. And the point I'm trying to make is that it's almost set up perfectly for bribes, kickbacks. I mean, it in some sense, like, it is essentially a mafia. I mean, I no? don't... I don't. So, so wait, how is that... Well, so, I mean, how do you get... If, you're, if you want to be the official beer of the World Cup... You have to talk them into it. Like it's so ripe. Let me just put it this way: it's so ripe for bribes. It's hard to imagine the, that there the aren't bribes it's happening. Really ripe for bribes is that it is based on a one-country, one-vote system. There are 192-ish countries in FIFA, and each of them gets one vote. And so the major soccer players, you know, Italy and Spain and Germany and maybe even England. Um, have the same amount of weight in FIFA as Barbados and the Faroe Islands and, you know, Trinidad. And so what that means is that if you want to get anything done in FIFA, you don't go after the important people in places like Italy and Germany. You go after the people in places like Trinidad and the Faroe Island, Islands who have just as much power and are much easier to have their arm twisted. Yeah. And that brings us to the election of Blatter, who's the, the like the president of FIFA, is up for re-election today. And in spite of all this turmoil in his organization, he looks to win. Yeah. I mean, I, I think... Well, we're going to see who's left in the organization as this uh, as this investigation unfolds. Because I mean, it's not over. It's it, they, the yeah. This reminds department... me a little bit of the way that the Justice Department or, or New York Attorney General went after Stevie Cohen, uh, SAC Capital Management. You gather up a bunch of lieutenants, mm -hmm. and then you basically hope to flip them to get the big guy. I, I would be astonished if the people who were arrested weren't being leaned on very heavily right now to start telling stories about how corrupt Sepp Blatter is. And there, there was a, this did start with one official in the U.S. Um, flipping, essentially. There right. was one, got one not, he wasn't that low level, but there was... He was the, very high level. Yeah, you're talking about Chuck Blazer? <laughs> say, yeah, yeah, Blazer. Exactly. Chuck Blazer, by the way, just so you know what, where this money went to, did you guys know that he in the Trump Tower he, he had, had his two, own apartment well, he had two, uh, two apartments in the Trump Tower. He had an $18,000 a month apartment for himself and then the neighboring $6,000 apartment for his cat. I just yeah. want to share a New York story because while that sounds crazy, while that sounds crazy, I did have a neighbor growing up on the Upper West Side in New York who had a one-bed for herself and one bedroom for her iguanas. So I'm just saying this happens in the city. It just on a different scale. That's all. So I want to put just before we end this topic, I'd like to have, have a little bit more context on FIFA. The DOJ chose to go after FIFA um, and it's $150 million of, of 
bribes and money laundering and stuff. It's not the first thing that FIFA has been known to do that's corrupt. It's maybe the biggest splash in terms of what they've actually gotten in trouble for, right? But we know that they've done stuff in the past, or we at least suspect that. In fact, the Swiss authorities are investigating them on how they decided where the World Cup is going to be in 2022 in Qatar. There's all sorts of allegations of corruption in FIFA in the past. I just want to make that yeah, point. I, I think... Oh, th- yeah. Th- yeah this co- a- no one in, was remotely surprised at the, at the allegations that FIFA was corrupt. Yeah, yeah, right. We've all known that for years. I also want to kind of circle back to, to that first question about expanding U.S. extraterritoriality and this issue of why FIFA was so bribe-prone. I think there is something about international sports organizations because they are international sports organizations and they exist in this kind of slightly nebulous, you know, sense of statelessness, even though they're they're based in Switzerland. But, you know, again, they operate everywhere that may have in the past given them a sense of maybe impunity and maybe because there wasn't anyone obvious who was charged with making sure they were obeying the law and what country's laws are they even do they even have to obey, really? And, and beyond that, um, I, the fact that they weren't necessarily br- being bribed or bribing you know, national officials, political leaders may have gave them a sense that they were sort of safe. What this case, I think, does sends a message not just to FIFA, but maybe to, I don't know, the IOC, other organizations that no, you're not safe if you're engaging any kind in, in this sort of corrupt behavior. The Justice Department is figuring out a way to edge its reach a little bit further even. Right. And just as to answer Pasha's question, the FCPA has almost Exclusively. I think there are only two cases where it's been used against U.S. companies. It's almost always used against non-U.S. companies. And yes, you have to pay because if the U.S. courts hand down a judgment against any kind of international company, that international company is certain to have operations in the U.S. and it can't just not do business in the U.S. Yeah. And so it has to comply with those, and with now those judgments. And now they may have to comply with, if they figured out a way to expand RICO, it's going to be a similar situation for maybe not just companies. I mean, not maybe not just these oh, Yeah, not just companies. Now it's all uh, these yeah. other sort of quasi-corporate entities like FIFA. So we are going to move on to media consolidation. It's a fun topic. But first, I need to shout out to um, QuickBooks Self-Employed, which is an awesome product, and it's particularly awesome because it's a sponsor of Slate Money. So you're self-employed. I mean, some of you are. And if you are, you should use it. It's as simple as that because it really helps you separate everything out, do your quarterly taxes, um, tell you how much money to set aside. It just makes your life much, much easier if you have freelance income, self-employed income, anything like that. Use QuickBooks Self-Employed. Go to selfemployed.com slash money. So you will get a 30-day trial. It's all free. It's worth it. Once you've tried it, you won't go back. QuickBooks Self-Employed. Go to selfemployed.com slash money. Okay, so this is the part of the show where I get to be conflicted twice over, which is kind of rare. There's often you can find yourself in a conflict. But in this one... Wait, does that negate itself? Do you get become Maybe it negates itself. So, so Slate Money is quite naturally um, owned by the Slate Group. Um, and Fusion, which is my day job, is owned, or at least 50% owned, by Univision. And we had a rather interesting media consolidation or media deal uh, last week where the Slate Group, which owns Slate Money, sold its property, The Root, 
to Univision, which owns Fusion. So I'm. Uh, this is. I don't even. I can't even begin to get out from under the conflicts here. But it was kind of interesting because it comes in the context of a whole bunch of other media deals. The big one, which you may well have heard of, is that Recode, which used to be called All Things D, um, had a brief period of independence um, after it got spun off from the Wall Street Journal and is now no longer independent. Has now been bought by. Vox Media, one of these big new new media companies. Um, and then there's been a whole bunch of like little baby ones as well. Anantech got sold to a company called Perch. ReadWrite got, got sold by Say Media to a company called Wearable World. GigaOM was shut down and is now being reborn under the auspices of a company called Knowingly. Um, you know, and and sometimes you just shut down completely. Like there's this company called Ratter, which was started by H.A. Delario of Gorka, and that seems to have just more or less died. Well, he only he only fired his whole staff and said he was going to pivot. He didn't. The company, <laughs> the comp- it's still it's not dead yet. <laughs> um, but you know, the the Daily Dish is dead. Yeah. Andrew Sullivan's blog. There's there's a lot of these properties which get kind of passed around from one company to another, or or fail, or and. It seems that the way it's working is that it's very hard to stand on your own. Can we talk about the life cycle of media companies? Well, Just, I yeah. mean, how are they born? I don't, I'm like, I, I totally am not they're outside born, this world. They're born out of dumb money. They're That's... born out of optimism <laughs> and then they die in the harsh glare of. Re- reality and cash flow. But it's not that. just optimism, right? Usually there's some kind of star journalist that's heading it. Or Sometimes. is that Sometimes. always true or not? Often, often there is. So yeah. Giga Ohm was O'Malik, Anantek was this other guy, Anand. Um, and and Recode was two stars. It was Kara Swisher, who I am perfectly happy to go, out, go on the record as saying is the finest journalist of her generation. Um, and Walt Mossberg, who had a huge amount of, um, what's the word? importance in 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 the tech journalism yeah. world he's he was at the wall street journal for many many years and there was this theory a couple of years ago that we were entering an era of where, where the stars were more important than their homes so nate silver had a franchise in elections which was at least as big as the new york times where he was housed that ezra klein had a franchise which could compete with that of the washington post and so that both of them left to start their own things um just like Kara and walt did with recode and it turns out that these big old legacy organizations which house these stars i mean even andrew sullivan you know, was always somewhere. He, you know, he started his blog on his own, but it was rapidly then moved to Time and then to the Atlantic and then to the Daily Beast. And these larger organizations can somehow survive better than smaller organizations. And, you know, Huffington Post has actually done rather well as part of AOL, probably better than it would have done if it had remained independent. I, you know, I'm going to... um try to also put a, a positive spin on what's going on in a way, which is just, I don't know if it's positive or negative, it's just that the last year, a very simple way to think about this is that for the last years, we've seen a lot of experimentation and, and small outlets go out and try to do something new. And now we're seeing what's succeeding and what's failing on its own terms. And some of them weren't small because they did have big corporate backers. Um, the difference between, uh, but they, now we're seeing the stuff that's really taken off like Vox Media and stuff that hasn't taken off in the same way. Like Recode had a much smaller readership. It was much more sort of a little bit more insidery, hard news, scooped driven and just could not get the takeoff velocity, let's put it that way, that 
box has. But you see, this um, is what I so don't understand. You see, this is this is the bit which I don't understand because yeah. Recode. I mean, all things D never had massive traffic. No. Um, and all, both all things D and Recode were explicitly built along the lines of we are going to have this website which is going to be an awesome free website which everyone in the industry reads yeah. and we don't really care if people outside the industry don't read it because the whole point of the website is basically to be a loss leader for the thing which actually makes money which is the conferences. I think so. Right. I, I think that's true. And that was explicit. And so the fact that they quote unquote only had 1.5 million uniques is like, well, that's everyone in the industry. Well, well and if also, I don't think they failed. They got bought by Vox, which is succeeding, which is now worth 400 million. Yeah, I, well, I, I mean, bought yeah. in, no one says how much, and it was an all stock deal. I don't think anyone is getting rich here. I, I, I think part of it is it's un, I mean, do we really, I haven't seen anything about how much, um, whether I, I I haven't seen anything on whether or not the conference business was paying for all the bills at that point, um, and whether or not it was sustainable. Uh, I I do think there's also some kind of you know there's some beside behind the scenes action going on here. Uh, specifically, uh, both Recode and uh, Vox had essentially Comcast or something involved with Comcast as a minority owner. Um, Recode partly had a, a venture arm of NBC Universal, I believe, uh, whereas Vox Media um, was partly funded by uh, Comcast Ventures. Um, so there's some sense that maybe these two companies are being combined in order to then eventually perhaps be purchased by in, in total by Comcast to kind of supplement what they have going on with NBC and bring themselves into the digital world a little bit more. So we can sort of visualize this as like a medium fish, Vox, eating the small fish, Recode, but being chased by a shark and yeah, Comcast. Well, yeah, exactly. Comcast is sort of, yeah, getting them together in the first place. Uh, it, Comcast is certainly one of the few companies which has the ability to easily swallow Vox at its current valuation. And Vox's current valuation is, you know... It's somewhere north of half a billion dollars, I think. Yeah. Um, I, but, I, the, but the one thing which which is pretty clear to me is that there is now going to be a retooling of Recode in a certain way in that it is now going to start caring much more about traffic. Vox cares about traffic. Vox is a traffic play. Mm -hmm. Vox's sites do amazing traffic. And when Vox bought Curbed Network, um, all of the sites in Curb Network, Curbed and Eater and Racked, all saw their traffic just go through the roof yeah. after being acquired by Vox. And this, on its face, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't entirely understand why it is that simply being owned by someone else can make your traffic increase like 10 times. But I'm pretty sure that it, just as it happened to Curbed, it's also going to happen to Recode, and that Recode is going to get way more traffic I, than it ever has until now. That's I mean, a I think really interesting question. I think management's fairly hand... I mean, my the, the, the part of Vox Media I'm most familiar with is Vox.com, partly just because I, I have friends there, et cetera. So I'm, we're all conflicted in this conversation, except for maybe Kathy. Um, but I, you know, I, I know some of kind of... I know a lot about how the website kind of got built and the ideas that got built around. Um, but a lot of the people who were building that and, and really laying the foundation were just traffic ninjas. <laughs> that's the only I way guess, to put yeah, it. I guess my question like, is, like, to, to what extent is Facebook but, but driving like, yeah, traffic? But that's, that's, but that's fine. But, if you, but if, then if also you there were other people like that if, in in the Vox empire. There were a lot, a lot of other people like that at SB Nation, places like that. They were all very traffic-focused and, and understood sort of that – understood – Facebook's ecology really, really well. I think it's kind of leaning on the current whoever's there at the publication to j kind of just 
play the Facebook game a little bit better. Um, I do want to say also because you have, I think people really need to start paying attention to Vox as one of the future major players in media because if they do get bought by Comcast, you're talking about a site with that or a group of sites that collectively bring in about 160 million readers. Um, I, I you're talking about, I mean, potentially bigger than the New York Times. That's going to be connected to NBC, Universal, and Comcast. It's going to be, if, if that happens, it's going to be enormous eventually. It, I really think it is. It, and they might end up being the winner in this kind, again, in this period of experimentation that we've seen. I, I, I think, I just want to go back to, to Felix's point a few seconds ago. Um, I agree with you that if you know how to game the Facebook algorithm directly, then you, you've you won in terms of traffic, but I actually it's think not that just what about fa- algorithms though. But it's about face, more than that. But face, but the what Felix was mentioning was that just by being linked, sort of by owning a different company, that company gets more traffic. I think that's a fascinating question. I, I, I want to know I think how it's that management. works. I think it's management. But what is, what do you mean by management? I mean I think it's once these companies are bought up, they're brought into the fold, and they are pushed to focus more on traffic and figure out the things that will grow. I traffic. see. I see. Because obviously no one at Curb Network cared about traffic before they were bought by Vox. Of course, that's all they cared about. I well, Maybe they got better at it. I think there's a, a story here. That's what I'm saying. What no, is no, it? Well, the, yeah, the story is is the dark arts of audience development. And yeah. no one really understands how it works. And it's highly secretive. And it's hard to pass. But I, I will just end this conversation with a, with a note, a brief note saying that... Um, White journalists really like talking about Vox Media (laughs) (laughs) because it's, you know, the root is much bigger than Recode. No one seems to care about it. So, you know, good luck to Univision with this property that, you know, media navel gazers um, really love to ignore. Yeah, it's five million, five million uniques um, versus Recode was 1.5 million uniques. Um, So, yeah, technically more than double the size. (laughs) Well, more than triple, actually. More than triple. Yeah, Jesus Christ. I'm <laughs> uh, I'm a business journalist. I do math occasionally. Uh, <laughs> and uniques means unique visitors unique to the visit. site. Yeah, sorry. Right. That's, yeah. Per day. Per okay. Month, no, yeah. Per month. Per, per month. Sorry. The, yeah. yeah. Um, that's that's the, the metric of art these of days. everything. Everything is. <laughs> like, it used to be it used to be hits, and then it was page views, and now it's uniques. It's going to be something else at some point. <laughs> so next up, we're going to disappear into virtual reality, but first the happier podcast with Gretchen Rubin. Hi, I'm Gretchen Rubin, the host of Happier. And in the latest episode, we'll talk about why you might want to cultivate a shrine. And also, we'll discuss some questions to help you figure out how to set up habits in a way that will work for you. You can subscribe to Happier at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Okay, Jordan. So... I'm sure that you're used to hearing stories about how virtual reality is the next big thing or going to be the next big thing, and it never really happens. But once again, we're hearing from Silicon Valley that virtual reality is the next big thing. It's coming. It's or at least the com- you know, Facebook and Google and Microsoft and GoPro and all these companies are, are going to make it really try to make it happen this time. The big news this week is that yesterday at um Google's I.O. developer conference. They introduced a bunch of new products. And maybe the most interesting thing was that they reintroduced this kind of almost goofy virtual reality headset called Cardboard. And this this thing was at first just a giveaway gift they, they, they had at this conference a year ago. And it was literally just a little piece of cardboard. You could unfold it and make it into a pair of goggles with some cheap plastic lenses that you could then insert your smartphone into 
and turn it into a virtual reality device. You could almost, uh, you could just put it on your face and there was, there are apps like you could ride a roller coaster and stuff on it. And it was kind of goofy fun. We tried it in the office. They've redone that and sort of improved it, made it work with more devices, uh, made it a little less chintzy. And at the same time, now they are joining all these partnerships to kind of build out the virtual reality ecosystem. So they partnered with the makers of GoPro to create this 3D camera. It's essentially lots and lots of little GoPro cameras circling around a drone that can then take 3D virtual reality images or 3D images that would work for virtual reality from, say, a historic site. Um, They're also building the API for developers so they can do more virtual reality apps. What's interesting about this is while Google is doing sort of the virtual reality for the people route, right, trying to really make this as cheap and as accessible as possible, you have Facebook, which spent about $2 billion last year on a company called Oculus Rift. And Oculus Rift is an incredibly expensive, uh, technologically wondrous headset that I've never gotten to use, but there are videos of people online using this thing and being wowed by it. I've used the Oculus. I mean, is it that expensive? I mean, it's got to be less expensive than... Right now, it's a GoPro drone with 400 well, cameras attached. So uh, right now, the the model they they just announced how much it's going to cost P- with all the hardware you need to make it work. The whole thing is going to be about fifteen hundred dollars. This is not a you know right now. This is being targeted at kind of hardcore gamers. That's the idea. But the idea. So you have these two massive companies both approaching virtual reality from two opposite ends of the spectrum and trying really hard to make it work. I, I just need to tell listeners at home that um, Jordan just sort of demonstrated <laughs> this virtual reality headset. You might have heard him, but I, I got to sort of experience the roller coaster with him. Um, like I, as I tend to do on the show, I try to draw my co-host's <laughs> picture uh, on the radio. But so, so I, I wanted to mention that l- yeah. I want to separate two issues, um, which came up already. Namely, the uh, the enjoyment of 3D things. Yeah. Okay, which is much cheaper with the cardboard Google thing than it is with <laughs> Oculus Rift, which costs fifteen hundred dollars to get the headset, versus creating 3D uh, sort of things that other people can enjoy. Which which I think the camera, Google camera with GoPro is, yeah, exactly. is involved with that. So I just want to make the point that my son, who loves video games, is really excited about cardboard because he can buy this five dollar set and use my Android. Uh, phone to do video games, like virtual reality video games. Um, It's not nearly as expensive as Oculus Rift. Okay, so is this something he likes? Because as an old, (laughs) I have to say I have seen one or possibly two 3D movies. I have used the Oculus Rift. I've tried it out. And my overwhelming reaction to all of these things is, this just gives me a headache. Get me out of here. That's a really important point. So the big difference in quality between these things is not just the plastic versus um, cardboard, right? It's the tracker that actually adjusts to you, right, to, to make it so that it's a seamless situation that you don't get a headache from. So I think it really does happen to be important that you're old and, and my 12-year-old is 12. Young people sort of are known to sort of adjust to this kind of thing much faster. Yeah, I mean, this is... We we actually are talking about maybe the biggest sticking point in the past and potentially in the future of, of uh, virtual reality, and it's it's therefore it's the motion sickness problem. Um, and Oculus Rift's uh, head of tech, um, chief technical officer, something big guy who's in charge of this stuff there, uh, has said this is still an issue for us. He he has admitted that. Um, so it's not just you being old. I think it could also be a problem for you know the gaming audience uh, who they're targeting as well. And is this is is the 
benefit worth the cost? I mean, this is the other thing. Even putting aside the whole wooziness and headachey things, every time I've seen this, it feels like a gimmick. And it doesn't really seem to help in terms of immersion, suspension of disbelief. I feel like when we're creating other worlds, whether it's in the pages of a book or whether it's in a movie or or however, what we do is we create this other world and then we invite the audience to suspend disbelief and enter this other world and immerse themselves in it. And they love it, the audience does. And they have done for thousands of years. And what we're doing with virtual reality is we're saying, well, it's really hard to suspend your disbelief. And so we're going to make it, we're going to try and pretend that you're actually in this other world. So you don't need to suspend. But of course you do. You know that this isn't <laughs> real. You still have to suspend disbelief. Why are we going to this, to these great lengths to create a world which is slightly more realistic seeming? Well, it I, doesn't seem like something which is important to me. I mean, just to bring it back to the idea of riding a roller coaster like physically it feels different to kind of participate in these worlds and i think the shocks you feel when you know a guy with a with like a monster with a you know hatchet or something comes after you and a game is going to be a little different when you're in virtual reality right, exactly. it feels yeah so, i mean i think that's it i think this yeah. is more of a sort of virtual amusement park yeah. than it is an actual well, piece of I have one, I, I, guys I, I, I have one word for you yeah porn Okay, that's actually that's. I think the Japanese are already. I'm not even kidding. I'm pretty sure there is a. a I mean, think about how much of the internet is taken up by porn. porn. I really do feel like that'll be a large part of the 3D. But I I also want to agree with you, Felix, that I don't think Google has or any of these guys have done a good job of bringing to us the reason why it's actually a great idea. They've basically said, here's a new delivery system for content, and they haven't told us what the content is. So we need to develop use cases. And my favorite use case, actually, from the Google um, I.O. conference is porn. (laughs) <laughs> they didn't bring that up, is um, doctor visits, right? Like you, if you are somewhere um, far away from your doctor, you can get them to put on a headset and you would have to have the cameras. So that's not cheap, cheap, right? But you would be able to say, "I'm here's where I'm sick and the doctor would be able to look. And so th- I'm just saying there are going to be really useful things about this. I also, I, that's kind of why I like Google's approach to this better than Facebook's. The let's get basic virtual reality tech out to as many people as possible and let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, And that's the Android way. Yeah, that is the Android way. Exactly. And I think that might uh, produce maybe some unexpected use cases. They won't have to do all of the work of figuring out what this stuff is good for. It's like YouTube. Just like YouTube. Exactly. And that's, I mean, this is a very, it is, it's a very Google uh, bottom-up approach versus uh, Facebook, which is, you know, a little bit more top-down. And you're seeing those aspects of the company kind of reflected, I think. Okay. So, it's numbers time, people. Uh, Jordan. Uh, So, I'm going to do a little callback to last week. Uh, My number is $90. You may recall that when I was hosting, I I mentioned that an artist named Richard Prince had uh, printed out a bunch of Instagram photos and then sold them at gallery at a gallery for ninety thousand to a hundred thousand dollars a pop, right? This had a bunch of people appalled, furious, whatever descriptor you want to use, that some guy was just jacking other people's images and putting a big pr- his name and a big price tag on them. Um, this is what he's done for decades. Uh, you can debate the artistic merit of it. However, 
uh, somebody came up with a fabulous retort. Uh, one of the photos that he had printed or Instagrams he had printed out was from the site uh, Suicide Girls, which is essentially an alternative pinup website. Um, girls with pretty girls with tattoos. Let's put it that way. Um, one, the founder decided that, well, if Richard Prince is going to steal one of our pictures and put a $90,000 price tag on it, we're just going to do the exact same printout but make, put a little comment on the bottom, just like he did, so it's fair use. And then we're going to undercut him and sell it for $90. <laughs> so, so, so this, I mean, I love the fact that people think this is a retort or that people think this is wonderful. This, all this does is it proves that no one at the Suicide Girls or even within Slate Money understands the art world at all. Oh, it's not. It's, I mean, it doesn't. I, no, I said this last week. It doesn't matter what the image is. It doesn't matter that there's a reproduction of it out there. In fact, the fact that there are reproductions out there might make the original image more valuable in a weird way because there was all this controversy around it. All that matters to the guy who bought that image in the first place is that Richard Prince's name is on it. However, just as a fuck you in his way, we're going to uh, using his you, using you know, the same thing he did and selling it for to make their point that this is kind of bullshit and then using it to basically raise money for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is where they're giving the money, I think is a, a very good PR move. I, I you know, I it's not disagree. Gonna... I feel like the amount of money the EFF is getting from this is basically zero since these are large I think prints which I think... cost about $90 to create in the first place. And number two... Copying Richard Prince copies of copies is something which a million people have done a million times. It's not big. It's, it's not clever. It's, it's a, not interesting. It's a big internet out there. Not everyone knows that it's been done a million times. Felix, <laughs> the art world is tiny, insular, and very wealthy, which does not reflect 99% per- of the people who I'm so would, glad I Felix is back. Girls. I really miss Felix. <laughs> <laughs> What's your number, Kathy? My number is 11.11. Uh, 11.11? Yeah. It's a nice number. Um, it's 11.11% is the yield on the Greek 10-year bond uh, right now. It's uh, it's pretty high. Okay, so just... I'm going to apologize to all of the people who are listening to this podcast, like, you know, <laughs> days or weeks after we record it. When, when we, we've had far too many references to t- today and yesterday and <laughs> right is, now. Hey, this is a weekly podcast. <laughs> yeah, Doug. Um, well, look, I mean, the, the, the point is... We, of yeah, the, week. The, the, the Greek... Ten-year bond is yielding somewhere in the region of ten percent, and yeah, and it was up to about fourteen percent um, that last month. But the point being that it's it's the, people don't trust the Greek bonds right now. They don't trust that they're going to be paid back, and it, it's a big deal, and it's an ongoing crisis, and we'll see what happens. Oh, the yield on the Greek bonds is the least of. Greece is where <laughs> no, I, especially, since, especially since Greece has no ability to issue debt. It kind of doesn't matter what the what the yield is. The only thing that matters is whether Greece. Finds the money probably from the IMF to pay the IMF, and if it defaults to the IMF, then all hell breaks loose, and they might be forced to leave the EU. Basically, I want to talk about Greek t- Greece today, but I knew Felix wasn't going to let me, so I snuck it in at the numbers <laughs> round. Um, we are going to have much, much talk of Greece, and I apologize to the Greeceophobes out there, but I'm trying to keep the Greece talk to a minimum. I'm going to come up with my number, which is. Six. Six is the um, percentage of women in San Francisco who are black. The interesting thing about that number is that if you look at all of the arrests of women in San Francisco, 46% of them are of black women. Wow. And this is across all kinds of things. Even if you look at things like traffic arrests, which you would think would have absolutely nothing to do with race, 51% of women arrested for traffic violations 
in San Francisco are black. Is this having oh. to do with those racist texts and emails of the San Francisco police? I, 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 I think, don't know I, I'm what just going to throw is. in that I think it does have something to do yeah, with that. I was going to say, I, I, <laughs> the idea that we wouldn't expect traffic uh, stops and arrests to have anything to do with race, I think, is, is a little charming. Yeah, we're, I think we're we, we fully that. expect that at this point. Um, but that's uh, appalling. Uh, is that metro area or just in the city proper? Do you know? That's I'm, just in the city. Oh, God. That's still awful. Um, so, oh, actually, Felix, I, yes. I also... This isn't... A, I, I have an addendum. I have a correction I need to make because a bunch of readers were, were yelling at me for... Something, a number I gave previously. A few episodes ago, I was discussing the effect of growing up in Baltimore on somebody's income and essentially how there was a new study that found that uh, where you grow up can either raise or lower, like it found there was a causal effect where where you grow up can either raise or lower your future income as an adult. Um, and I made a, a little bit of a mistake. I, I accidentally said Baltimore County had the worst effect on children in the nation. It's Baltimore City. They are separate. Um, and the study treated them as separate. A lot of people who kind of messaged me and were confused about that. So I wanted to apologize for that fact error to the readers uh we try to keep our numbers rounds here at slate money as we don't uh, have readers we have listeners our listeners <laughs> but maybe that's why i keep Wait, addendum to the addendum addendum to the addendum <laughs> as, that's why i keep maybe that's why i keep trying to draw them pictures i keep thinking that they're reading um anyway so sorry about that my bad it but it was baltimore city i was talking about on which note we will bring this slightly random episode of Slate Money to a close. Next week is going to be rather awesome, if I do say so myself. I think, I'm not going to promise here, but I think we might have a very special issue for you about things like kids. I believe, you know, some of you are small business owners. Some of you have kids. Some of you have both. You should all be listening to next week um, and every week, which you do by subscribing, by searching for us in the iTunes store, just type in Slate Money. Uh, leave a review. Do please leave a review. Um, they really help in terms of getting the word out. You wouldn't think it, but they do. And yes, just like Pash, write to us, slatemoney at slate.com. We love your questions because they mean we don't need to come up with topics on our own. We just get to <laughs> <laughs> pull them from the email inbox. Many thanks to Audrey Quinn, who produced Slate Money this week, and as ever, Joel Meyer, the managing producer, and Andy Bowers, the executive producer. Slate Money is part of the Panoply Network, so check them all out, including Gretchen Rubin's Happiness and all of the other ones at iTunes.com slash Panoply. So, until next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.